0: the real location of racism is not in society or a political or economic system, but it is in every fallen human heart.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Have you ever considered what the root cause of racism might be? And how does one truly solve the issue of inequality? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 14 of his current series titled Trending Versus Truth. As we once again look to the scriptures for answers to trending topics, Tom will continue to examine what the Bible has to say regarding racism and inequality. You'll be reminded that biblically, Racism stems from every fallen human heart, and the human heart can only be changed by the transforming power of the gospel. How is that achieved, though? And for those who reject the Bible, what hope is there for true justice? Let's join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed.
0: Genesis one twenty seven says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Part of the image of God that Adam was created with included spiritual endowments, and part of the spiritual endowment he received was righteousness, rightly treating other people according to God's standard. But sadly, the image of God that included that righteousness was terribly marred because of the fall. Still, because of the residual image of God in man, and all men, there is in many, even unbelieving people, a desire for justice to be done. But here's the problem. Our sense of justice has been terribly distorted by both the fall and our own fallen hearts. A second source of the social justice movement and the critical race theory is a national sense of guilt for slavery. I think you understand that a people or a nation can be marked by certain sins. For example, if, if I were to take you back to the Old Testament, I could show you passages where Israel was again and again marked by the sin of idolatry. They were known for that sin. The Babylonians for their pride and self-exaltation certainly shone so clearly in the life of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. You look at the Assyrians and you find that they were, as a people, as a culture, a bloody, brutal, violent people. And, of course, the New Testament example is not a very flattering one. If you look at Titus, Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, this is where Titus ministered, by the way, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says this testimony is true. Wow. What was he saying? He was saying that nations and peoples can be marked by certain sins. Doesn't mean everyone in in that nation or people group commits those sins, but there can be a mark of sin. As a result of sins committed by many in the culture or the group, There can be, therefore, a collective sense of guilt, even among unbelievers. And believers within that nation or group find themselves acknowledging those sins in their people and asking God to be compassionate and gracious in spite of those sins. Great examples are Nehemiah chapter 9, the prayer of Nehemiah there, as well as Daniel chapter 9. In Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah acknowledges Israel's past sins as as they reaffirm their covenant to God. And in Daniel 9, Daniel acknowledges the sins of the previous generations, God's just punishment for those sins on those people, and the lasting consequences even up to Daniel's time. He seeks God's forgiveness. This is really important. He seeks God's forgiveness and grace for his own sins, and for the sins of the people whom he currently represents as God's prophet in Daniel 9. But what you don't find in either of those passages is Nehemiah or Daniel asking God to forgive personal guilt because of the sins of others. Now, how does this factor into our own situation? Our country was founded and built on the system of slavery by kidnapping, a sin that is completely condemned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we will see a little more of next week. Our culture has been forced to acknowledge the reality of our nation's sin and the lasting effect of that sin. And that awareness creates guilt that people seek to alleviate. I'm convinced that the wholesale cultural acceptance of the critical race theory stems in part from this national sense of guilt. There's a third source, spiritual source of this, and now we get more to the heart of the issue. It is a sinful distortion of biblical justice. A sinful distortion of biblical justice. You see, the critical race theory holds a distorted view of justice. In biblical justice, guilt is individual. In the critical race theory, it's corporate. In biblical justice, you are guilty because of personal sin. In CRT, you are guilty because of the sins that your ancestors or your ethnic group commit. Is that what Scripture teaches? The answer is absolutely not. Let me show you what Scripture teaches. First of all, Scripture teaches that we are not personally guilty because we belong to a culture where certain sins predominate. We are not personally guilty because we belong to a culture where certain sins predominate. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. You remember the context here. God has determined to destroy the the cities of the plain, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their homosexuality that permeated the culture, their aggressive homosexuality demonstrated even in the story that you're familiar with. And in response to that, Abraham begins a discussion with God. He's concerned about Lot, his relative, and and his family. And so look at Genesis 18, verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, the angels, while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh. So Abraham is having this discussion with God. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? And then he, na- he makes this observation about the character of God in verse 25. For Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked, this is the key, are treated alike far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly, or literally do justice? Verse 26, here's the Lord's response. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. In other words, God agrees with Abraham's description of his character. And of course, Abraham continues to bargain and sort of bet that there are, there are some righteous there. Go down to verse 32, then Abraham said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. Now, at this point, Abraham's betting on Lot and his family, plus maybe just a couple people that he influenced. Of course, it was a wrong bet, but this is what he's betting on. And God says, I will not destroy it on account of 10. Now, what's going on here? This text is making it very clear that God does not assign guilt to those who live in a culture who do not actively participate in the sins of those around them. Even if those sins are completely pervasive, you could even say in Sodom, systemic. They permeated the entire culture. And again, read the context and that becomes very clear. And yet, God acknowledged that there could be righteous people in that culture who, in fact, were not responsible and could not be tainted with the sins of the culture. A second point Scripture teaches in this light is we are not personally guilty because our ancestors sinned. We are not personally guilty because our ancestors sinned. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel 18, God teaches us that we are not personally responsible. For the sins of the generations before us, even the immediately preceding generation. Look at Ezekiel 18. This this passage is one of the key passages in the Old Testament. It lays down a basic foundational principle of God's justice. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying? The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, they were saying, look, God is punishing us not for our sin and complicity, but for the sin of others, for the sin of our our ancestors. Verse 3, as I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. And here's the point God wants to make. Verse 4, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. God lays down a basic principle of his justice, which is it is individual, individual justification, individual condemnation. Now, he goes on, beginning in verse 5, to talk about a number of different scenarios. What about when there's a righteous father who has a wicked son? Or what if there's a wicked father who has a righteous son? Or what if there's a wicked father who has a wicked son, or a righteous father who has a righteous son? He deals with all of those scenarios. And in the end, this is his conclusion. Go down to verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? And God says this, when the son has practiced justice and righteousness and observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. I'm not going to punish him for his father's sin. Verse 20, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Now listen carefully. Although we bear the continuing natural consequences of the sins who li- of those who live before us, and we do in our country, We do not bear any personal guilt for their sins. That is a basic principle of God's justice. Number three, we will be judged solely by God's standard of justice. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul begins to argue the principles of God's justice because the Jews had misunderstood. The heart of it comes in verse 6. Look at this statement in verse 6. God will render to each person according to his deeds. Paul says this is what God's coming judgment will be like. God's judgment is certain. Notice, God will render. God's judgment is individual. God will render to each person. Folks, the final judgment will not be a national judgment. You will not stand at the judgment with your ethnic group. You will stand before God individually. I will stand before God individually and give an account. God's judgment is universal. Verse 6 says, God will render to each person. That is, to every person without exception. And then the main point he gets to in the rest of verse 6 is that God's judgment is evidential. It's based on the evidence. Notice, God will render to each person according to or in keeping with his deeds or his works. God's verdict will be a perfect reflection of the collective evidence of our lives, our thoughts, our motives, our words, our actions. What I want you to understand is the idea of collective guilt based on the sins of the people around me, the group I belong to, or the sins of those who live before me is a violation of the basic standards of God's justice. A fourth spiritual foundation of the social justice movement, and here we really get to its heart, is a theological rejection of radical human depravity. A theological rejection of radical human depravity. The social justice movement and the accompanying philosophy of critical race theory are built on a rejection of theism. They're atheistic. They are built on a rejection of Scripture. Because the only real sin in CRT is oppression. And the only ones who can commit it are those in the majority. What you need to understand is this is, in fact, a cover-up of the real human problem. Let me explain to you the real human problem that lies behind racism. First of all, the real location of racism is not in society or a political or economic system, but it is in every fallen human heart. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Where this sin is present, where it is obvious, it is something that comes from the individual heart. Mark chapter 7, you remember the context in verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, nothing outside the man can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man. There had been a discussion about washing your hands and the kinds of foods you eat. And, and Jesus essentially s- makes all foods clean here. And it's, it's further um, punctuated in Acts chapter 10, the, the vision that Peter has there. But he gets to the point, you know, his disciples, verse 17, you know, they leave the crowd. The disciples are like, what did that mean? And Jesus says to them, verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts. And from those evil, sinful thoughts come sinful actions, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things, and we could add every other evil thing, proceeds from within and defiles the man. The real problem in our culture is individual and personal. It is in the fallen human heart. Secondly, I would say this, the real cause of racism is radical human depravity. This is what it traces back to, radical human depravity. Turn to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, Paul makes the indictment of the presence of radical human depravity. And then beginning in verse 10 and running through verse 18, he presents the biblical evidence for that depravity. He begins in verse 10 with a summary. Notice what he says there, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And then he follows with a string of Old Testament references that illustrate the depth and scope of human depravity. Notice what he says here, verse 11. We have darkened minds. No one understands. He goes on in verse 11 to say we have enslaved wills. No one seeks God. Verse 12, we have rebellious lifestyles. All have turned aside. By the way, that's not like you accidentally wandered off the path. The the Greek verb there has the idea of you got tired of walking on the path of what God required and you've gone somewhere else intentionally. Rebellious lifestyles. Verse 12 goes on to say sinful behavior. There is none who does good, not even one. And then he gets more specific. In verses 13 and 14, he talks about the toxic speech that characterizes humanity. Notice how he describes it. Their throat is an open grave. The the kind of talk that comes out of people's mouths is like the rottenness in a tomb. With their tongues, they keep on deceiving. People are liars, and when they speak, they intentionally seek to harm others. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing. They curse other people who are different than they are. And when they've been wronged, either they've actually been wronged or they have a perception of wrong, they are filled with bitterness. And that bitterness just spews out in toxic speech. And notice this toxic speech spills over in verses 15 and 17 to destructive relationships. You see, the sin in our hearts leaks out, and it infects and destroys all human relationships. Because notice verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Man has a predisposition to violent anger. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. Man has a pattern of destroying relationships. If you follow in the path of a fallen human being, apart from God's redeeming grace, you will find in their wake, everywhere you look, the debris of broken, devastated relationships. Verse 17, and the path of peace they have not known. Not only does man fail to walk on the path of, that is characterized by peace, he doesn't even know where to find it. He doesn't know it. He doesn't recognize it. Why? Verse 18 there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's the root cause, the basic reason, the primary source behind all of the sins in this passage. Now, folks, what I want you to see is that the diagnosis of the social justice movement and of the critical race theory is so incredibly shallow. Because the real cause of racism is the radical depravity that characterizes every unredeemed fallen human heart and still resides to some extent in the heart of the redeemed because we still have our flesh. Thirdly, the primary sin behind racism is hatred, which is endemic to the fallen human heart. Look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, we also, all of us who are believers, once were foolish ourselves, like unbelievers are now. So he's, he's saying, we used to be this, all unbelievers still are. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Now watch this, spending our life in malice. That's with a vicious disposition toward others, and envy, wanting what others have, hateful, that means we were hated by others, and hating one another. So we were not only hated by others, we hated them. This is what the fallen human heart looks like. It is characterized by a vicious disposition that envies and hates, and it doesn't matter you know what your socioeconomic situation, what your ethnicity, what your circumstance is, what nation you live in, it doesn't matter. If you're not in Christ, then this is a description of you today. And it's a description of what we used to be, and by God's grace are gradually unbecoming as we become more like Jesus Christ. Number four: the only permanent solution to racism is individual conversion. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't desire and pursue the decreasing practice of racism in our culture. Of course we should, just as we should with every other sin. But what I am saying is this, and by the way, I'll talk a little more about that next week. But real permanent change is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 4. Verse 3 is what we used to be. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of the deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Verse 6, which He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we've now been justified, declared right with God by His grace. And now what's possible? Verse 8, those who have believed in God, those who've been saved, those who've been changed, can now engage in good deeds. Now we can not be hating toward others, but loving toward them. Now we cannot have a vicious disposition toward others, but we can be kind and gracious like God is. This is the only thing that produces real, permanent change. Let's pray together.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 14 of his current series, Trending Versus Truth. Join us next time for part 15 as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. And Tom, notwithstanding the complex issues of racism and inequality that stem from the fallen human heart, how should believers assist in pursuing justice for those who are truly oppressed?
0: The biblical wisdom is so refreshing. Because God calls us not to ignore real issues. On the other hand, he calls us not to seek temporary solutions that don't really identify the real problem, nor offer permanent heart change solutions. Instead, we have to think biblically about these issues, and and that's what we're going to try to do in the next several programs. We're going to consider together how the scriptures speak to this issue of our times, so that we can think, as Paul puts it to the Corinthians, with the mind of Christ, even about this very controversial and important topic.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org.